this evening I would like to talk about creative love and compassion but first I'd like to answer a question because there was a little note on the board with a question which I thought also could uh, in some way be connected to this theme and actually the question was about yesterday I talked about creative engagement with thought and somebody was saying okay they could understand about daydreaming but what about imagination and what about being in the present while writing a novel so that's what I want to kind of uh, look a little at and what is interesting is to notice that one of the things we often do in meditation to spend the time nicely is daydreaming you know you kind of go into this daydream and basically you space out, you escape, and you're really not present. And also to me what I see is a danger in daydreaming is that it's very much a wish-fulfilling type of activity and also it's very abstract and you create a mono-reality which of course when you sit in meditation is not too problematic, you could say, apart from not actually doing the meditation itself. But I think in daily life, this kind of um, kind of spacing out, escaping from the present, and creating this kind of wish-fulfilling reality, is that generally it makes us very frustrated when we come back to reality. Because, for example, if you have somebody who is sitting at home, let's say the wife sitting at home, saying, "Oh yes, you know, dreaming of this beautiful daydream," but the perfect husband and the perfect children and they really love me and they appreciate and they nourish <coughs> and then you know the husband comes back really grumpy and the children come back and they make a mess and she feels very frustrated because the two realities don't match and I think to me that's why I think in a way in terms of daily life and also in terms of meditation to see the pool the, the seductiveness of the daydreaming, but also actually, in a way, a slight danger to it. But actually, when I was in South Africa visiting a prison, I was talking with a, one of the prisoners who meditate regularly, and he was saying that although he meditate regularly, he also do quite a bit of daydreaming. And I was saying, yes. I mean, in his situation, he has another eight years. I could understand as a survival mechanism, daydreaming is one of the things that helped him to survive there. So he could see its danger as he was trying to kind of find the balance between a little bit of daydreaming as a kind of a safety mechanism and being in the present, being aware. Then, of course, there is imagination. And I would say actually, imagination is different is what I would call a function of the mind, a function of being alive. This is what kind of really, if we have imagination, it brings, us, it brings aliveness, it makes us feel creative. For me, this is very different to daydreaming, which is in a way, is getting lost, and I don't think it's very creative. And so, for example, if we look at kind of writing, actually I would not make a difference so much between novel writing or writing about ideas or what, for example, I'm doing more like kind of writing about facts. Because either way that it be fiction or real writing about real life, it's 
in a way, creative writing. And this is the thing. When you do creative writing, you create what was not before. There is really a creative act. Before you write the sentence, the sentence did not exist in that way. And it's not that the sentence was kind of, you know, written somewhere at the back of your brain, and then you just kind of copy it as you sit in front of the screen. It's more you encounter the screen or the computer nowadays, and then you kind of, in a way, create that sentence. And to me, this is very creative. But what I find, for example, at home, what I'll do is that I'll throw seeds about idea of what I want to write about. I just kind of throw a few words what I want to write about. And I don't think about it. I kind of, I don't eat my breakfast and think about it. But if I wake up a little early in the morning and I lay down, I might just throw an idea and then leave it. And then when I get to the computer, I really, you know, create out of these ideas. Like they kind of percolate, bubble at the back. And then I will be able to work with them as I write. But I cannot write more than two hours because it's very tiring because it is creative and it is not copying. But this is what I would call in a way using function of imagining in a creative way in the doing of it. But you do it and then you let go of it. And to me, this is in a way the difference with in a way writing a novel and you're totally obsessed by the novel. And then it's very repetitive all the time. You know, that you eat, that you are with somebody, whatever you do, you're obsessed by the novel. And to me then, you are not living. And then I would say there is a problem. And to me, the, it is, is what you do exclusive or inclusive? Are you able to really be present to what you do, that it be using the mind, using the feeling, using the body, and really be in it, and then when you finish it, let go of it, and go to the next thing, and in a way flow through the various functions we have as human beings, or do we get caught, do we get obsessed and repetitive with any of these activities? So in a way, what I'm talking is, what do we do? Is it in an exclusive manner or is it in an inclusive manner? Which in a way leads me to what I want to talk about, which is are we open to life or are we close to life? To me this is very much what meditation could help us, to be more open to life, to our potential, to other people's potential, to life itself. And that's why I think love is so important that actually often in the spiritual circle we don't really talk much about love. I mean you talk about big love, love for humanity. But to me this is very abstract. I'm much more interested and I think it's very important in a way to love. To love ourselves, to love others. I think this is very a vital in a way in a way, function that we have as feeling that we can love. This, I think, is amazing. Because, in a way, in love, we open. Because generally, we love. In love, there is a relationship. We relate to others, we relate to ourselves. And in that relationship, there is that openness. We kind of open ourselves. We're not so close, we 
open to others in love. And I think this is in a way very important. So we open to life, we open to the world, we open to others. I would even say we open to ourselves. Can we love ourselves? Can we bring that care, that openness to ourselves? And actually I would say there is a texture, a texture in love. And when we love someone, what is, how does it feel? And actually you can feel its warmth. You feel this warmth. You feel this. Uh, and that's why we love to love. Because it's warm. We have this very warm, very wonderful feeling. And I think in this feeling, in a way, there is appreciation <coughs> of the other. And for myself, today I am with you and I am missing my niece. Because today the niece is at home with my kind of being, because it's holiday time for her, she's with my mother, which means that in that afternoon my husband took care of her. And so I was not there. End of the time, I'll be with her. Because I get that feeling with her. I don't have any children, but I am one in, I am with the niece. <laughs> you know what I've seen her? She's a tiny baby and I kind of, I love being with her. It's wonderful. We have wonderful time. Together we do design and drawings and all kinds of things. And there is this warmth. And so in a way, she gives me this warm feeling. And I think I give her also this warm feeling. There is this connection. You open to another being in a very, I think, beautiful way. It's very important. And what was interesting for me, when my uh, grandmother was uh, in the last few years, she died last uh, a year ago in December. Was it? In, I mean, we used to, we used to love each other very dearly, my grandmother and I. We had a very special connection. And she was uh, when she died, 94, and from the time she was 92, she started to weaken in terms of her brain function and various things. And one thing that I used to love to do was that when I used to come back from traveling, because I travel a lot, I would go and see grandma and she would see me and she would be as this ecstatic smile, she's back, you know, and it was a beautiful moment, you know, she had the, ah, she's here, you know, and it really warmed her heart to see me. And actually in the last year of her life, this, this dissipated. You know, that she could not, I mean, she still knew that I was her granddaughter and we still could be together and she liked that. But this kind of hard connection, somewhat, she could not do it anymore. The functioning was not there in the brain, I think, in, in, in the heart. It did not really kind of, was there anymore. But we noticed one thing that actually made it, and this was the little fluffy rabbit of the niece, because the niece bought it one day, and grandma fell in love <laughs> with that fluffy rabbit. And she wanted to have the rabbit all the time next to her. And the niece was so sweet every time she came, oh, I must bring the rabbit for grandma. And why did she like to have the rabbit? I think it's because in some ways it helped her to have again that feeling, that very human feeling of warmth of love, of caring for someone else. 
that actually she could only have that connection with that rabbit, that was in a way the last of that connection she could have. And I thought this was so, in a way, touching and so sad in a way, but the, the two going together. How important it is for us to feel that feeling of love. And in terms of love, I think we have to be careful that I would not equate love necessarily with liking. And this I learned in living in community. I live for 16 years in community. So I've kind of some practice with it. And what I learned is actually you don't need to like somebody in order to feel care and concern and love from the, for that person. Because actually what I learned in living in community with people you don't choose to live with. This is kind of like arranged marriage, living in community. You know, you are with these people and you kind of stuck with them and you're all spiritual so you must get on but <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. But what was interesting about that loving the other person is that actually you, you, you love them because you get to know them. You get to know them at a very human level. And it's very interesting people who have been in community have a special bond. Even if they do not like each other. They have a special bond. They care for each other. They concern for each other because, in a way, by living together, you open to the other person. You can, what I was saying this morning, you can finally the human being. You cannot just stay in the abstraction or what you like or don't like, but you cannot meet the human being. You feel for that. To me, this is a very basic, in a way, love for life, love for this life in this moment, and in a way, responding to that life with love. So in a way I would say we have many opportunities in our lives to to feel that, to cultivate that, to 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 manifest it with our children, with family, with friends, with life itself, which come in many forms. And I think in a way, as we open to that love, actually it nurtures us as as well as we can nurture others. And I would say then we have to look at how can that love be creative? How can it again <coughs> have that feel of creative engagement I talked about? Because often <coughs> what we hear in spiritual circles is that you must not be attached. And so generally you think, well, if I cannot do that, then I cannot love anybody. And there was this wonderful article in Tricycle magazine a few years ago about this woman who wrote a short article, but it was delightful. It was all about a Buddhist boyfriend and how unattached they were <laughs> and how uninvolved they were. And it was very interesting. You know, how one can use that idea in a way to actually not risk our heart, to kind of, you know, be very selfish, actually. To me, this is not love. And so, I would say that when we love somebody, we have to look at what is it that, in a way, makes it what I would call not creative. And I would say again, it's the same mechanism I was talking about yesterday is a grasping. 
You know, we love somebody, it's wonderful. I love my niece. But if I grasp at her and I wanted to be with her all the time, she would not like this at all. She wants her mother. Her mother is like, you know, very important for her. You know, I am really kind of third best, <laughs> if at all. But if I, if I grasped at her, it would not work. Because in a way, I would limit her by my grasping. If I wanted to be with her all the time. She could not develop, I could not develop in loving her and others. So I think we have to see what is it, in a way, that inhibits that kind of creative quality of love. I would say this grasping. When we grasp, when we hold, and I think we can love in a very profound way, and we can very connect it to someone, but in a way which is, so you, there is attachment, what I would call healthy attachment, but not this grasping which limits ourselves. And I think at that level we have to be careful of that romantic, very, uh, I would say, modern idea of uh, <coughs> romantic love as this kind of spiritual merger, that we cannot merge, we become one. This is, I think, a bit kind of cuckoo land. <laughs> because to me, it seems actually maybe, I know this is weird as a metaphor, but personally I see loving someone, loving a special person, as parallel lines. Not this kind of cocoon merger thing, but that actually it's parallel lines. It's like you have these two lines going together. And actually inside the line is the love you cultivate together. And that can go. Of course, the, the in between the line can go a lot. So that there is, you know, with this you grow together. But you grow together in there. But at the same time, either side of the line, there is all the connection. There is all the opportunity to love in different ways. There is not just one way to love. And that, I think, is very important. Because as soon as you limit yourself, your love to one person, actually you stop yourself loving in different ways others. Because we love in a different way, a partner, to children, to family, to friends. So to be careful of kind of just connecting love to romantic love. To me there is also this creative love in romantic love, but also there's so many other places which I think in a way helps you grow as a human being and also in partnership. Another thing which is interesting if we think of love is interesting when people, for example, jealousy. You know, because somebody, often you read about people who say, the fact that I am jealous means that I love you. It's kind of saying, because I grasp at you, I am really showing my love to you. And I'm mm -hmm. being possessive. And at that level in France, you still have crime of passion. And that, I think, is the weirdest thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that you cannot be violent. You have an excuse to be violent because you're crazily in love. And to me, this is not love. This is kind of a kind of a disturbed emotion. <laughs> if it leads you to kind of kill the object you love, this is not love. And so, in a way, to kind of look at the idea, there is so many interesting ideas and weird ideas around love that I think, in a way, to kind of question, to look, what do I think love is? How do I love? 
myself? How do I love others? I think it's important to kind of, in a way, inquire, to know. To me, one of the important qualities of love is that it is not sticky. That it is, it, again, it has this openness, it has this warmth, it has this care, it has this concern, but it's not sticky to the self or to the person. So in this, there is care, there is respect, there is a appreciation, there is also attraction. But at the same time, I think we have to notice, for example, if it's kind of romantic love, that what we love about romantic love generally is falling in love. You know, you fall in love, but can you fall in love forever? You know? I don't think it's possible. I think there can be that amazing moment where you suddenly, boom! I mean, you know, and that is quite intense. But can you stay intensely there? Well, then you feel, oh, I don't love them anymore because I don't have that intensity. But how can we sustain this kind of intensity? So in a way to kind of notice, what is it? I'm looking for? What is it I'm searching and is it possible? And what are the various qualities we can find in love? Because in a way I would say, to me the greatest gift that love has to offer is trust and acceptance. That in a way this is the greatest gift we can give to somebody. is to say, I love you, meaning I accept you fully exactly as you are. Can we do this? Because generally what we do is that actually we have conditional love. I love you, but I would love you more if you improve this bit, or if you were not like this, or if you did what I want you to do. To me that's not, it is love, but it's conditional love. But how do you feel when somebody says, I love you totally. It's amazing. You feel amazing. I think, and if you do this to somebody else, I think it's kind of an amazing thing to do. But it doesn't mean that because you accept them fully that you cannot then work with them. If there is things which are difficult, things which are problematic. I know with, I mean, this is a very minor thing, but just as an example, uh, with my husband, um, I have a tendency to be fast, he has a tendency to be slow, he's English, and I'm French. And it's very interesting, you know, because now I have noticed this tendency that we quite differ there, you know. So when we travel, if there is any problem, I'll go faster, he goes slower, and then And so now I kind of, I know it is like that, so then I kind of see it, it, I laugh about it, you know, and I kind of, you know, try to, we try to work with it, you know, to accept he's slower and yes, to accept I'm faster. And how can one be with this different way of being? So, I would say that, in a way, when we love someone, in terms of attachment, I think, yes, we depend on the person, we're influenced by the person, we're nurtured by the person. It's kind of a whole thing that actually we can cultivate more and more, which can, I think, can be very nurturing to love, to be loved. And at that level, I would say the meditation is actually about opening the heart, opening the heart to love, I would say. I mean, to me what is beautiful about meditation <coughs> retreat is because 
we cultivate, we practice, and it seems in a way so... It could look self-absorbed. I do agree. You're sitting on your cushion, and you're kind of, you know, very kind of, you know, on yourself. But what I experience very often on retreat is that I do the meditation, and at one moment, I will be sitting there, and suddenly, I, I feel like my heart opens. And the only way I can describe it is that at that moment, I think, I have no trouble with nobody. But at that moment, in a way, I can love anybody. That there is this openness, this warmth, for every everything that is alive. And why is that? I think it's because of the deep grasping. Because the meditation helps us to dissolve the grasping. What stops us, in a way, from feeling, from loving others, loving ourselves. So I think that is an important ingredient of the meditation, is this kind of feeling of love, of openness, of heartfulness. And so also I think through the meditation we can feel, as I said, you know, through looking into the breath, we can feel the connection with all of our life through the air that we breathe. Or we can, in a way, if we look at the condition that forms our body, we can know that actually, in order for us to be alive, we depend on everything outside. Just the food we eat, just the water we drink, we do not produce it. So all our life depends on everything from outside. So in a way, there is this definite interdependence that through the meditation we can be more in contact with. So then we feel less isolated and less closed off. And what was very interesting was, uh, though very sad, in France, was this two years ago, there was this famous hot summer in France for the first time in it. And 15,000 people died, all people. They died of the heat. And you would say, wait a minute, I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is a modern, industrial, Western society. How can 15,000 old people die? But in our village, nobody died. And nobody, no old people died of the heat in villages. They all died in the town. And why? Because they were disconnected because they were living alone in little apartments that nobody in a way knew they were there. I mean, and there were people, dead people, nobody claimed. They, they, they didn't know their family. Nobody came to look after them or to be concerned by them. <coughs> but in the villages, in France, still everybody knows everybody else. And people, if somebody is on their own, they will go and check them. Even if it's not hot, people will check on each other. And I thought this was so interesting, that people who were connected live. But people, because of their condition, who were not connected, die. Which I think is so sad in a way. But this leads me to, to talk about, I think, what important thing about the meditative path, which is compassion. I think this is very important, this compassion. That's what, in a way, the loving-kindness is a little about. To kind of, in a way, notice, feel that innate response to suffering, 
but in a way we feel for, we feel with others when they suffer. But in a way we have that ability within ourselves to feel, to empathize, to respond, to connect, to open. This I think is very important. And that in a way the meditation helps us there. There was this uh, fellow long ago I met in France who was a, a meditation teacher. And he said when he started to do the meditation, he was very keen. And he was an architect, so he had done a little meditation room for himself. And he was good and he would say to people, I am going to meditate. And they would oh no, not again. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would go to meditate in his little room and he would come out and he would be so angry and shout at them and they really did not think he was good to them. <laughs> and so finally he noticed that, you know, this meditation did not make him more compassionate or more loving. And he realized that actually he, had, he was using meditation to kind of block everything, to block any feelings, to block anything. So then it did not, I mean, it was the opposite of what meditation should do. So then he would come out and, and then he kind of then kind of started to do meditation in a more skillful, healthy way. And then it was more of a positive. So in a way to see how do we use meditation because sometimes we can even use meditation to do the opposite effect of compassion to close ourselves off which really is not the idea the idea is really in a way to open ourselves and to me one of the things about meditation and that's what I was trying to point out you know, in the guiding this afternoon that through the meditation we recognize the life of others we recognize another human being. We have such a tendency to be self-centered. But this is an important part of the meditation that we recognize somebody else is breathing, somebody else is suffering. Their life is as important to them as my life is important to me. So in a way that recognition of equality in life, to me this is one of the roots of a compassionate response, a compassionate feeling. But I think in that, when I talk of compassion, it is to me an other-centeredness, but I rather not use the word selflessness. Because often when we think of selflessness, we feel that we disappear when we serve the other. And to me, actually, I think it's more healthy to think of yourself growing in serving the other. But in a way, when you open to the other, there is that groundiness within you. There is that, in a way, because you also love yourself, you can love others. There is that groundedness. So the compassion doesn't come from nothingness, but actually it comes from this fullness of being. I think this is very important. And I would say also, another important part of compassion is availability. And this concept I found in actually an existential philosopher, a French one, Gabriel Marcel, who talk about being available to the other. And I think to me this is very much part of compassion, that actually compassion is not just a feeling. Because sometimes we actually don't feel compassionate. But actually we can still be compassionate in terms of being available to the other. To me this is very important in a way, that 
it's not enough of having the feeling, they need also to have more movement to have that availability. And he used to say it's like when you, you meet somebody, it's a friend, they're ill, and so you feel for that suffering in that moment, and so you want to help them. And so they go into hospital, and you say, oh, in three days I go to see them in hospital. Three days later they're not there. So because they're not there, you don't really have that same feeling. But still, you go to the hospital to visit them because you're available to them. And to me, this is a little what I was cultivating, in a way, doing when I was in France uh, with my grandmother. When I was there, every afternoon, unless there was something really urgent, I would spend about an hour or two hours with her, playing triomino and watching TV. I must say it was much easier watching uh, playing triomito and watching TV because you know she wanted to have a conversation while we watch TV together. This was a little problematic in terms of awareness, but it was a good practice. <laughs> but in a way, I did it no matter what. Sometimes I was a little tired, and I felt like being with her, but my body was really tired. But I was available to her, so I still went there. I still kind of sat there. I was not so bright and kind of cheerful. <laughs> But still I was with her, because that's what she wanted. In a way, she needed that connection with another human being. So in a way, I was available no matter what was the condition. And so to me, this is, in a way, in comparison, there is these three things, the feeling, the recognition, and the availability. And then it really forms what I would call this creative compassion. And at the same time, it's not necessarily totally enough. I think there is compassion, there is a feeling, there is the recognition, you are available. But to me also there is creative response. But actually, it's not just a feeling, it's also doing something about that feeling. It's about, in a way, responding to the suffering of others. So it's not just an abstract notion. I love everybody. Well, so what? You know, I mean, are you kinder to the neighbor? To me, this would be the litmus test. Does it make a difference that you kind of think, I love everybody, in the actual reality? So in a way, the compassion also being an action, being a movement. And what was very interesting for me in this famous Indian trip, and very illuminating, is we had a little uh, challenge given to us by Shantam, our cultural guide. So we go to India, and if uh, you've been to India, we've heard about India, it's full of beggars. And all types, you can find all types of beggars. You have the children, you have the disabled children, you have the, the women, you have the old grandpa, the old grandma, and then some of them disabled or whatever. So I mean, and there are a lot of them everywhere you go, especially if you go to pilgrimage place. So we were going to encounter a lot of beggars. And at the same time, we were a group of meditators, and all of them gave to charity that it be at home and abroad. And our guide, cultural guide, Shantam, who is a Buddhist, a meditator, who does a lot of work uh, with charity and everything, as soon as he met us, the first thing he said when we kind of were going, he said, for three days, 
I want you to not give to beggars. Ah. He said, as a practice, I want you for three days not to do anything and to be aware of your feeling of encountering the beggar and not giving anything. So, this was a challenge, and it was very challenging, very challenging for me, because I, mean, I kept kind of wanting and kind of looking at Santa Maria, kind of, kind of <laughs> losing something when he does not look. So, you know, it was very interesting, that kind of feeling to really want to give, because it was our innate response, because you feel you've got everything, and they've got nothing. So you think, oh, I can, I can give to them, I want to, and then you, I cannot, I cannot. It was very interesting three days. And then after three days, the idea was to have uh, a meeting. So all of us, the 29 of us, would get together and we would talk about it. And then we would talk with Santa because he is Indian. And then we would talk about, you know. And what was so interesting at that meeting was all the rest, all the skillful idea everybody had of coping with giving or not giving because some still gave, no matter what. And how we were with it. And it was very interesting. Because one of the things that I thought during these three days was, why do I want to give? Is it for myself or is it for them? Do I want to give so I feel better because I have given something? Or am I really doing something good for them? Because what Shantan did was to explain to us, by, uh, if we gave, then what it sets up especially if we gave to the children. If we gave to the children, it means that they did not go to school because they had to go to be begging for the, for the people, for the pilgrims, especially for the Western tourists, which uh, kind of give more generally. And he said, you know, and that's one thing he really said, you know, he recommended for us not to give to the children. So they kind of, you know, did not get into that habit of spending their time begging instead of going to school and getting some training and then being able to, to work in a way. And, and so after that, what it showed us is that in a way we had to be skillful and creative in our begging, in you know, who we gave to, who we responded to. So for me it was children, disabled, and old ladies. That's generally what kind of, I kind of, that was my criteria. Because in a way, you have to choose the criteria because there are so many of them. And my greatest kind of day was, after the great discussion we had, the next morning we go to the Mahakalake, which is a special place where the Buddha sat. And as we go there, there is 10 minutes you have to walk up. And there was hundreds of beggars. I've never seen so many of them on either side of the trail. There was all these beggars, young, old, all types. And what can you do when you have hundreds of beggars in the side? I just kind of look at them and smile and say, Namaste. There's nothing else to do because what I noticed is that there was a Tibetan pilgrim, I thought there was this weird thing, Tibetan pilgrim who bought old-fashioned coins that are not used to give to every beggar. And then the beggar gives the coins back to the person who sells the coins to the pilgrim. So you have this kind of recycling project going on. <laughs> but what happened is that when the, all the Tibetan pilgrims gave the money, is that they would create a riot 
then next to them they would be kind of sort of like a kind of a guard who would beat up the, the beggars so that they would kind of, you know, they could continue to do it. And I thought, I don't want to create a riot in that way. All the people used to give them sweets, and all day the beggars would have sweets. And all the kids, I mean, they must have terrible kids. <laughs> so I thought, no, 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 I don't want to do that either. So in a way, this was very interesting, in a way, being in India in that way. And to see that you want to give, you have this feeling, you want to respond compassionately, but in a way that you have to do it wisely, you have to do it skillfully, creatively. And one thing about compassion is often people will come to me and say, I feel compassion, but I feel overwhelmed by the suffering of the world. You know, what can I do about this? And to me that's why again, with compassion, I think it's so important and how the meditation can help us to have this creative, wise engagement. That in a way, we look, that when we see the suffering, personally I think it's very important to meet the suffering, to know the suffering of the world. I think it's important that we are witness to it, at least. But at the same time, we have to see that we have limits. There is, in a way, it's kind of like concentric circle. We can try to have compassion for ourselves, for our family, for our neighbor. We can participate in some causes in the world, but we cannot be a hero or a heroine and save the world. This is a kind of a romantic dream. This is not real. So in a way, what can we do within our circumstances? So I think, to me, that's why the meditation is so important, to cultivate that, what I would call, equanimous acceptance, which is very connected, but also is wise and can see what can, where can I do something and where I cannot do something, to really kind of see what is my limit. Another thing I think which is important is to be careful how that suffering, that compassion, you see you have this feeling of compassion, which because it has to do with suffering, there can be a little sadness in it. And what we have to be very careful is that this then does not connect it to what I call the poor me syndrome. Poor me, poor me, poor world. And then you get into this very hopeless place, very frightened, like you kind of, you know, there's so much suffering in the world, and I'm suffering, and this is terrible, and generally then you end up in life worth living. But actually what is amazing in India is people are very poor, but at the same time they're quite joyous. You know, those beggars on the Makala thing, they were kind of like, they laughed and joked, it was kind of like a day out. It looked like, kind of, it was a kind of garden garden for the children, you know. That's what, I'm not saying that it's, poverty and happiness go together, but that actually we have to be careful about this kind of connection of the sadness with another deep sadness within us. But in a way, if we could cultivate that kind of, um, to me, which is very much a meditation feeling of being grounded like a mountain, very stable, very steady, but at the same time being as wide as the ocean, so in a way the, the ocean can encounter anything, but it's not in a way 
as this kind of uh, movement in the ocean, but the ocean intrinsically is not changed by it. You kind of, you know, it takes in everything. There is this ability to hold in a very fast way. Can we, in a way, cultivate that within our compassion? So just to finish, I will just kind of say two small stories. One is back to India and in Bodh Gaya. Bodh Gaya is uh, where the Buddha was awakened. So this is a, very, a big pilgrim place for the Buddhists. Lots of pilgrims and so lots of beggars, but that's part of the course. And in Bodh Gaya, you have the most school that you could have in any town. But 95% of the schools are fake schools. Because the, the people, the Indians, have noticed that something which is important for Western people is schooling. And so you will have all these people come up to you saying, I have this school, you know, do you want to donate to my school? That's why the school are called donation school. Mm-hmm. And very interesting how, you know, it's so clever how they kind of get, you know, the psychology of the Western mind. Because we visited a real school, one of the real, I mean, the real school. And uh, it was beautiful to see these children. But again, in that school, they could only have so many children because, again, they needed to have more fun. But what they did, what I thought was kind of really, kind of real, so you could see the real children doing kind of a, really kind of benefiting from that uh, schooling. Another thing that I encountered was uh, in uh, South Africa. Last time I was there, because we help a little um, when we can, the Zulu village, which is next to the center. And so last time a friend said, because they have a little, uh, a, a charity has been created for doing AIDS work with the villages. But at the same time, they cannot do so much relief work, poverty work, because they don't have so much fun. And so sometimes they cannot ask us to help just one specific family. And that time they said, there is this family and they really kind of, you know, it's really difficult. Can you come and see? Meaning, can you see them and then help them? But I was happy to go and see. And so we went to this hut and there was nothing in the hut. There was really poor, poor, poor. And there was this old lady and she looked totally, totally depressed. Like she had no hope in her life whatsoever. And there were two children, maybe six, seven, and full of scabies and kind of, I thought they were boys. And so we, we, we were asked to help them. We said, of course we helped them, because they could not go to school, they, I mean, they had no money, they had no food, they were just going begging. There was no mother, there, there was no father, there was nothing. And so we said, of course, we'll give money for, for them to go to school, to get clothes, to have food, to even say, you must buy a pot. You know, there was no good pot there, so you buy, buy her a pot. He was so bad, I thought actually a pot would also help. So after the old the girl going to school and the grandmother going for treatment for tuberculosis, and to me, it's really kind of in a way, won't be because it was so different. 
suddenly the two little children were not boys anymore, they were girls, actually, and uh, they had the proper kind of girl clothes and they look all really kind of bright and everything. And the grandma suddenly looks 50, she's actually 50, and she looks like bright and alive, like there was hope in her life. But why was there hope in their life? Just because two people had recognized them. I say, yes, we can be there for them. We can be there for you. And to me, it was kind of so little. What we do is very little. But actually, it was enough to kind of suddenly give them a life. And the little girl now has kind of passed the exam of the class and they seem to be bright and everything. And so in a way to see, to me the compassion is very much for, I would encourage you in your life to really see in small ways how can I be compassionate to myself but also to others? How in small ways can I cultivate, can I have this creative response from this feeling, from this recognition, from this availability? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.